Welcome to the Women's Mentoring Network of Canada, a podcast about ex-cadet women mentoring and building community together. I'm your host, Amanda Calhouse, a graduate of the Royal Military College of Canada, class of 1994 in electrical engineering. Good afternoon. Today I have with me Charity Wheaton. How are you doing today, Charity? Hi, Amanda. Thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation and congratulations to you for forging ahead and making this great podcast. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Let's tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and when you went to military college and which one. Sure. Um, I entered Royal Military College in Kingston in 1992 and as a, an air navigator back then. Uh, that's what they called them. That's the only one I really remember. (laughs) I always default to that. And now it's, of course, called Air Combat System Operator. However, uh, in 92, went into the mechanical engineering. I I think we didn't select what type of engineering until, what, second year year or so? Yeah, so did McEng and graduated in 96. Awesome. And that's where you and I met because we were in the same squadron. We were. LaSalle. That's right. (laughs) Um, So, and what do you do now? I have a very unique job. I'm the vice president for global space policy at a company called Astroscale US. So Astroscale is a company that is focused on space sustainability. So they are developing technology and services surrounding space debris or extending the life of satellites in orbit. And my job, because space is a highly regulated profession, then I am in charge of making sure the the policies and the regulation are to our advantage to make sure that we can get our licenses and and get up and and do some good things for the future of space. Very cool. And probably a job that didn't exist when you were going through military college. No, (laughs) no, 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 not at all. Uh, A lot of these space jobs, you know, the the world's your oyster if you want to do a a space job these days, I feel, uh, from your you know, engineer to policy professional business. I mean, there's venture capital in space today. So there's a lot of investment going on. I mean, any, any way you slice it, there's a job for anyone who wants to be in space, artists and educators. I mean, I could go yeah. on and on. That, it's interesting, right? Because I, I think, you know, back when we were growing up, it was the space meant astronaut. Right. And I think you can talk a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was just a, a girl from Edmonton, Alberta, and I was interested in space. You know, one day it caught my eye, the Challenger accident, and got to thinking, you know, those are pretty brave people, what they did and how they got into the program, and learned a little more about that and, and got really inspired, to be honest, yeah. about the, the space profession. But Canada had had one single, you know, application process for astronauts at that right. point. And I mean, the second one came a decade later. I mean, it's a very rare opportunity. And that's really all that's in front of kids back then anyway, is like space astronaut, right? Right. And that's not the case. <laughs> not not anymore. Hopefully there's more engineers and more uh, more folks out there talking to kids on the range of disciplines to do with space because they they are all needed. However, that was kind of the singular focus that I had. And so I kind of shaped my education and and what I wanted to do later on based around that. And I looked at the 
second astronaut application process and saw that Chris Hadfield had been selected and he was a military college graduate, pilot, mechanical engineer. And I'm like, oh, okay, let me try that. That must be the path. <laughs> that must be the path. Because <laughs> I can tell you the brain surgeon pathway is not the path for me. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> that was not going to happen. Or, or you know, Olympian. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Those were the other paths that you had yeah. seen. Yeah. And, you know, so is that what really, in essence, prompted you to go to military college in the first place? It was. It was. It was a way to think about how, what is, what is in a unique pathway, what pathway fits my personality. And I was adventurous. And so I thought, hey, what's, what's the military college that's farthest away from home? (laughs) (laughs) And I'll apply to that. Um, And so I was, I was really proud to, to be a part of that. And I have to say, I did listen to the podcast with Rosemary Park today. And I'm just really stunned I, I mean, I didn't really fully realize the path-breaking, yeah. you yeah, know, effort that all of these ladies did before us to get us, you know, where we were. Oh, that was easy to get in, and that was easy to do a job flying. But there was so much behind that, and I didn't really realize that. It's a bit of a shame, isn't it, that, like, we weren't that far behind, but it really was a lot easier for us than it than it was for those that came, you know, in those 10 years before us, like even the five to 10 years before us, I think it was still a lot more challenging. I mean, the fact that the pilot occupation had only opened in, I think it was 89 or 90. It's crazy. Yeah. And you and I started in 91, 92. Yeah. And yeah, so very, very fortunate timing wise, I feel the fact that Canada had you know, second set of astronauts, you know, there were also, the Canadian forces have been involved in space for quite some time, actually, Yeah. with ground-based space surveillance assets and NORAD, et cetera. So there was something there that I could hook into. However, I needed to go off and pursue the, the occupation I was, I was told to pursue or <laughs> given, rather. Yeah. And, and I actually really enjoyed it. I enjoyed navigation training. I enjoyed satellite fixes from the aircraft and flying and that experience as well was was really great and although I might have grumbled at the time don't we all (laughs) sitting sideways you know getting sick on many flights you know sea state five and above over open ocean that was never fun but (laughs) I still look fondly on that time frame as it was like foundational to me and and how I became full officer if you will yeah, uh, because at RMC, you know, I joined when I was 17, left when I was 21. It wasn't a fully baked, <laughs> perfect anything. Uh, so it took a lot longer in getting that operational experience and background behind me before I felt more comfortable. Oh, it makes a lot of sense. So you met, you mentioned CC-85. So where did you serve as a, an air navigator then? I was on the CP-140 Aurora, of course, and served on the East Coast in Greenwood, Nova Scotia. And really, I had one single long first tour there, first posting, and also was sent to Operation Enduring Freedom in Southwest Asia during, during that time frame as well. When you say long, how, how long were you posted there? I was there for six and a half years. Wow, that is quite long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course, you know, after six and a half years, I 
I mean, during that time frame, I, I did get my master's degree in space studies, and uh, I feel the, the career managers really felt I was serious about this whole astronaut thing. So they gave me a chance and sent me to NORAD in Colorado Springs, where I was one of the two Canadians attached to the Air Force Space Command tracking satellites, uh, which was my first official space job. That's awesome. Were you able to stay within the, the space domain, if you will, while you were in the forces then? Because I know there wasn't a directorate of space until fairly recently, right? Uh, there was a, a new director of space development, I think, by the time I had gone to Colorado Springs. Most space jobs are based on missile warning and that sort of functional occupation in NORAD. There weren't many like, space surveillance jobs or there you know, obviously spacecraft development as well. I think it was it was very early in those days to be able to be selected for one of these space positions and let alone a navigator. That was really out of normal. Um, of course, you know, any space job in the Canadian Forces, they there is no space occupation per se. So they do take from other occupations into that. And there are some you know, obviously navigators, pilots, I've seen Mari, I've seen Siwi, I've seen all, all sorts in the space profession. But it was out of the ordinary for, I feel myself, after a first tour to go to right. Outcan, if you will, to Colorado right. Springs and be able to do this. So you're no longer in the military. So how did, how and when did that transition happen for you? Yes, after Colorado Springs, I, again, <laughs> pivoted a little bit. Uh, I kind of had a zigzag of a career, my, my military career, went to the Canadian Space Agency. Again, there was one single air navigator position wow. there um, in the flight readiness manager uh, shop where they were preparing for um, Dexter, the special purpose dexterous maneuver to be launched and attached to the space station. So I got it to have a firsthand look at that, and that was a lot of fun. But after the Canadian Space Agency, I really wanted to get back to the States my husband is American, and he got accepted into George Washington University Public Policy PhD. So that was another reason why we were aiming to go back into the States. And I saw that there was an air operator position in the Embassy of Canada in Washington, D.C. Uh, so I saw that as an opportunity. I knew that Canadian capability in space was growing and interest in Allied ship in space was growing as well from the U.S. side, and I really wanted to try my hand at kind of space diplomacy and, and go work out at the embassy. And so I offered to the air attaché there and, and talked to the director of space development at the time as well, mm-hmm. said, hey, look, you can get an air operator or you can get an air and space operator. Mm-hmm. And so they said, sold, <laughs> you're going to Washington. And there, and off I went. And had them make up the plaque outside my office to say space, uh, air, and space. air and space, air and space ops. It reminds me of an expression I heard at some point in my military career that you are your own best career manager. <laughs> it sounds like you really took yeah. that to heart. <laughs> I did. I did. Like, you know, that I believed in, you know, doing my duty and, and, making sure, you know, it was part of the Canadian military. But at the same time, I knew that I would be really, really good at the things I'm most passionate about as well. And so, I, you know, I, I was relentless uh, <laughs> in pursuing those really niche space positions. 
So after the embassy tour, by the way, that was an amazing four years there, I really couldn't consider another posting that would top that, to be right. honest. It was such a such a great opportunity. So and that was also kind of halfway through my working career, right? 23 yeah. years RCAF and potentially another 20 plus years as a civilian. So I thought it was a good time to um, retire. And so I did, came back to the States. I had to release in Canada. And okay. while my family was in DC and, you know, get a visa to come back to the US. Oh, wow. Before my kids started school. Yeah. So that, that must be an interesting process too, just from a, a you know, I'm, I'm just thinking about the process of getting a visa and all those things. Did that take, you know, several months or was it weeks or? Yeah, it took a little over a year, actually. Wow. You start early um, yeah. and you get in line. And, and it, so the timing actually did work out pretty well. I was back after my release, I was back in, in the U.S. by September and I didn't have really any job prospects. I feel I was still seen as, you know, foreigner, Canada, <laughs> kind right. of thing, even though I had a work visa. And so I decided to kind of start my own consulting business and, and help and really take the things I really loved about my military career and bring them into a business aspect. And those three things were space, sustainability, solving hard policy problems, and that international diplomacy piece that I love to do so much. So I, I consulted with a couple companies uh, early on, but got the opportunity to work at a, a trade association down here called Satellite Industry Association as their senior director of policy. And I was the person representing the U.S. space industry wow. uh, in front of the U.S. government also went to the UN and <laughs> sat at the, U the U.S. desk. Wow, that's <laughs> waved, waved my, my Canadian colleague. <laughs> um, it, was, it was surreal, to be honest. Yeah. And yeah, and that was, that was a really good eye-opening experience of what are the real policy challenges that the industry has uh, for growth in the right. space industry. So I decided again to take my hand at those three things I really wanted to do and just narrow it down a little more and met Astroscale, folks from Astroscale at that point. And I, I thought about it. I'm like, okay, wait, you are doing on-orbit servicing, debris removal in space. Uh, you're a Japanese company opening a U.S. office. with. They also have a U.K. office. That's the international diplomacy side. Right. You're solving hard policy problems and you're checking the box for space sustainability. Um, this job was built for me. Like seriously, yeah. this is this is exactly what I wanted to do uh, and, and be able to influence at the early stage the success going forward and making sure that the thousands and thousands of satellites that are planned to be launched are done right. systematically and safely. So it's it's interesting to me to think about, you know, that international policy being done. So is it a private company? Is it a public company? How does that sort of piece play into it? It's a private company. So like I said, headquartered in, in Tokyo, but they have offices in the UK and, and also the US office has a subsidiary in Israel as well. So we are truly a global company mm -hmm. and solving a global problem when you think about it, space debris. Yeah. When you when you launch something into space forever <laughs> until it comes back and is disposed of, mm -hmm. um, it is it is the 
launching state. So that could be anywhere, plus you know, the, the mission authorization responsibility rests with one nation or multiple nations until the end of time. Right. <laughs> so if it breaks up in orbit and crashes into something else that's operational in orbit, and there's some sort of legal ramification of that, it can become a very sticky legal situation between nations. Right. And nations are responsible for their own private citizens' actions in space, too. So you can't just say, well, that wasn't my satellite. If it was launched from your territory or you have a mission authorization, some sort of licensing aspect to that satellite, you could be held liable as a nation. And so this is problematic when you think about the six decades of debris, yeah. um, upper stage rocket bodies. There's about 8,000 tons, metric tons of rocket bodies up there. One narrowly missed a defunct satellite last week. Oh, wow. And they do also break up because they're heated, cooled, heated, cooled, yeah. and will break up in, into many, many pieces that are hard to track. And add that to the burgeoning ability of, you know, the miniaturization of technology and components and the lower cost to launch and the lower cost to develop and and manufacture satellites. And you have yourself the crossroads of six decades of debris generation multiplied by thousands and thousands of satellites being launched with old rules, right? Right. They're, They're there really aren't many rules in orbit today, and the international community is trying to update those rules. So Astroscale is kind of in that realm as well. It's like, what rules do we need to develop to ensure space, long-term space sustainability? But also what we're doing is so new. Yeah. You know, rendezvousing with another satellite is something that typically just governments do, right? You right. know, space station docking or Apollo. Right. And, and there's been a couple... NASA-funded, DARPA-funded projects of on-orbit servicing. But until recently, that's all been military or government-focused. And now we have the opportunity to do this in a commercial manner. Uh, You see Northrop Grumman, they have their on-orbit service or life extension service in geostationary orbit. We're doing pretty much the same thing, plus the active debris removal piece to make, you know, the low-Earth orbit congestion issue uh, mitigate that as well. I'm going to switch topics a little bit. You know, you've been forging a path, I would say, your your whole career. So how has mentorship played into your career? You know, have you had mentorship and, you know, has it been, have there, I, 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 I suspect there haven't been a lot of women forging ahead of you, but I'm, I'm curious to hear from your perspective. Well, you know, during my time in the Canadian Forces, I, I don't feel I had a lot of female mentors for sure, definitely I, I can't remember. I mean, there was always role models, of course, but mentorship wasn't necessarily a thing mm-hmm. back then. It was more like, okay, you know, do your thing. If you happen to connect well with, with someone that can help you along, that's all good. And so my attitude during those years was, you know, just just be good at what you do. And you don't have right. to worry about all the extra biases and, you know, the nods that comes along with you know, gender disparity, disparity, et cetera. And so I didn't really pay attention to it. I, I was a damn good navigator and I did my job and was respected. And it's only 
recently that I've realized, hey, wait a minute, even if you are excellent, there's still biases out there. And so I've taken upon myself and, and wanted to mentor uh, young professionals in, in the space field um, to help them navigate those rocky roads as well. So while I didn't have any specific mentors or dedicated mentors, it was really those role models. Um, and I have to say, male role models that really allowed me to innovate. And in the military, right. you're not supposed to innovate, right? <laughs> you're supposed to, you know, follow the checklist and, and, and you know, do what you're told. Um, but there's a s- specific type of a level you get, you know, when you're thinking through strategy and you really need diversity and innovation for that and creativity. And so, yeah. you know, I have, I credit my commanding officers and bosses along the way for giving me the latitude to try new things, to be the space attache to, okay, I, I believe in you. I'm going to send you to NORAD and see what you can do there. So it's not really about gender it's about everyone lifting everyone up, whether you're male or female or undecided. That's a really good point, right? I think a lot of us said that's been a common thread I've heard. You know, there wasn't somebody ahead of you that those allies do make a world of difference. So are you current, you currently mentor others then? Yes, either ad hoc or I'm also a mentor for a program called the Brooke Owens Fellowship down here in the, in the U.S., although they have fellows from around the world. And that is an exceptional program. And there's more popping up every day. And it's exciting to see. And I, I see, I think there's even going to be uh, something similar in Canada to mentor young professionals, females, or a diversity-focused fellowship to get them not only mentors, like you know, day-to-day champions for them, mm-hmm. but also the internship to actually get the work behind you and get the feel of, you know, what it's like to work at a space company. So I'm one of those mentors for the Brooke Owens Fellowship, you know, also have volunteered for the Society of Space and Satellite Professionals International and just just really getting out there because the space community, you know, we are small. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it's a, it's a very passionate community, as you can imagine. You know, we all love space. <laughs> Very much so. And we talk about it all the time. <laughs> and so it's, it's one of these things that is really enjoyable to bring up young professionals and, and welcome them with open arms into this community because we need more. We need more engineers and more policy makers and more legal analysts and, and so on and so forth. So, it, yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled to be a part of any sort of volunteerism and mentoring and, and helping uh, young professionals into this community. That's awesome. Are there things that you learned either about yourself or just, you know, lessons that you learned while you were at military college that you've gone on to apply for better or for worse? <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, I was, I was young. <laughs> it's yeah. hard to, um, it's hard to, you know, think back and, and look back on kind of all the mistakes one makes when one is 17, 18, 19, 20, but I got to say, out of all the, you know, trials and tribulations of military college, you know, physical fitness stuff was difficult, of course. The military stuff, the drill, and I didn't speak very well French at that point. So my summers were either, you know, French or added onto my already busy engineering curricula. 
And then the college part, like making sure you learn (laughs) when you're exhausted. Um, So it was difficult. And I would say that the one lesson learned out of all that is, you know, it helped me understand what resilience really means. It's something that I look for in my young mentees as well. It's like, if you're down, how do you get yourself back up? That is the key skill today and back then as well. Uh, to be able to be resilient and and bounce back and go on and do great things. It's a a really good point, right? Because I think, you know, resiliency is, it's a learned skill, right? Mm -hmm. It's not something you have to be born with to be able, you can develop it. And so, you know, it provides a really good opportunity for, for people to learn that and to understand that. Is there other advice or any advice that you would give to others that are interested in, in, in maybe specifically the space path or, or just more broadly around, you know, transitioning, you mm. know, after a, a full military career? <laughs> well, yeah, a few things. Well, one, there is no one path, right? So yeah. I started off thinking there was only one path. And I found very quickly there's many paths and that paths I hadn't even thought of or knew about. So just keeping a, a general, like a general vision is really helpful. And I, I tell people it's a vector. It's not a destination, <laughs> right? So it's going to point you in the right direction, but you're going to zigzag on the way there. And that's right. okay. And you'll, you'll discover things. You'd like, oh, this is me. This is actually what I wanted to do. And I did right. apply for the astronaut program in 2008, a month after I had my first child. <laughs> I'm like, what am I doing? Um, and I had to think long and hard of why am I actually doing this? And it came down to, I wanted to serve my country in space. And as I worked at the space agency and came into the embassy and I thought about that goal of representing my country in space, and I looked around and I'm like, I'm at the freaking embassy. <laughs> I am doing what I wanted to do. So you never know where, you know, the, those real reasons why you want to do what you want to do, where they'll pop up and, and you will naturally get there. Also, the multidisciplinary side of things. I'm really glad I had my operational flying career. Mm. This has been the foundation, actually, of my thinking in the space business, of knowing right. what the end user really needs or, you know, that handling things under pressure and under stress you know, connecting the dots, anomaly resolution, right? There's something wrong over here and then something wrong over there. Oh, they're connected, right? There's there's right. so many good things you can get. It doesn't have to be a space piece. It would be real. It will help relate everything you've done before into your future career. And then the teamwork and building camaraderie. I really feel I, I because of my military career, I know what that looks like now. And it's really right. important to build that, you know, team cohesion in the space industry as well. And and across a lot of industries, not just space. So, so those are sort of things, you know, keep your vision alive. Don't be afraid of new challenges or things that are not laser focused on that vision because it's going to, it's going to come back. It'll help you. Right. Um, And network, network, network. (laughs) If you're an interview (laughs) introvert, it's, it's problematic. I realize but it's something, it's that X factor out there that gets you into these roles. And, oh, I know someone that knows someone. That's what the space business specifically is like. So get out there, be known right. If you, if you're, if you want to get in the space policy mm-hmm. field, put your opinions out there and let's discuss. That's how I 
find out about a whole range of topics in, in spaces by, you know, people writing papers and academic journals and just getting your thoughts out there. That's awesome. And, you know, you said about don't be afraid to try new things. I know you've been trying something new recently because I actually listened the other day. Uh, you are also a podcaster. Yeah. So tell us a little <laughs> bit about how you got into podcasting as well. Um, so it's just a kind of a passion project. At Astroscale, we're always looking for ways to connect with the public. So we like to, it's not just about government. It's not just about industry and space. This is about the public being engaged because right. a lot of people don't realize how how reliant they are on space every day mm. and so we're always looking for new and novel ways to connect with the public and so we're like why don't we just start this podcast we'll just bring some friends on and we'll talk about what does it take to build a long-term sustainable space ecosystem and by that I mean like you know think of the Jetsons not you know the Flintstones right like how do we get yeah. there and, and, you know, where you're resilient and you're space sustainable and there's honorable services, logistics up in space that we don't have to worry about just launching all the time, you know, hardware from Earth. We can actually build things in space as well. So we just started asking people if they'd be part of the podcast and develop some questions, some main questions around space sustainability. And we're about eight or nine interviews in. And the last one was with um, astronaut Pam Melroy. Uh, That's the one I listen yeah, to. Yeah, <laughs> she's so great. And I'm in awe, by the way, all of these. I remember when uh, former NASA minister Charlie Bolden came on and, and I was talking to Chris, my coworker. Um, Chris is the chief operating officer of Astroscale. And as I was talking, I'm like, I'm so nervous, Chris. This is Charlie. <laughs> and then I hear this voice like, who's, who's nervous? And I'm like, oh, Charlie's on. <laughs> so it's, it's all good. These are all my heroes. And, and I'm, I'm really, um, you know, thrilled to, it's, like I said, it's, it's a passion of, of ours just to get the word out. And I, I kind of enjoy it. And I stumble a lot. And that's, I kind of force myself to, you know, get out there in, in public and speak yeah. and talk about this. Astroscale just launched its own satellite a couple of weeks ago. And so I, I tend to do the things I'm uncomfortable with. And I think that is a lesson I've learned from the military. That's a really good point, right? I, uh, I am equally uncomfortable in some of those settings, so totally understand it. But I, I do like the one-on-one, so that that's how I found yeah. it's been been helpful in uh, you know in this endeavor. Yeah, there's a certain there's a certain ad, after some point you're like, you know what? I don't care what people think of me. <laughs> I'm just gonna go and do and try new things. Um, you know, just give it all. I think it's I think it comes somewhere after 25 years of uh, post university. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> somewhere around that point, you realize, oh, oh, maybe there aren't people that that know more than I do about a certain and, topic. And, and and maybe it doesn't matter if there are. And, you know, in this day and age where everyone's, you know, an expert on Twitter and, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm more than comfortable in, in voicing my opinion now because, you yeah. know, I, I've been doing this for a little while and yeah, my voice needs to get heard um, probably more so than an armchair <laughs> spectator yeah. or something like that. Yeah, exactly. So as we're, as we're wrapping up here, is there anything else you would like to leave our audience with? Mm. Maybe I'll ask you a, uh, an off the cuff space question. Do you watch the expanse at all? <laughs> I love the expanse. 
I just started watching it. We're on season four. So. You know, I had the hardest time getting into it. It took me three or four tries in season mm-hmm. one. I'm like, ah, I can't do it. I can't do it. This is so <laughs> slow. And then it picked up and then I was hooked. So yeah, the expanse, in fact, the the diplomat in the expanse in our podcast were like, who do you want to be as a TV show or um, in a movie? And I'm like, I want to be her. Yeah, Christian. <laughs> Christian yeah. I love and her. And I want her wardrobe, by the way. Yes, right? I want all the clothes. I want the power. I, I like to love it. I love what she does. Um, yeah, there's, there's so much out there. And I love the fact that people are thinking about sustainability in space. People sit yeah. up and pay attention to close calls in orbit. I, I don't know if you recall that last yeah. year, you know, over Philadelphia, there's going to be 15 meters apart, which is a sliver in space, two large yeah. objects. Um, I think folks are becoming more aware. And that's really exciting because that's what we need. We need kind of a groundswell. You need people to care about you it. You need right? people to care about it, not ignore it. And it's one of those things that if there are more and more collisions, in orbit, that means we cannot access all the really important things we need, national security needs, civil needs, also business needs in space. And so I'm just super excited to talk about it, of course, as I, I tend to, to flow into that sort of thing. But I think it's, um, it's an exciting topic to think about, um, and I'm glad that people are starting to become more aware. Awesome. Well, and you know, if pop culture helps with that, then I, I think that, yeah. you know, that tends to happen, right? I mean, I can't believe we're still talking about the Jetsons, <laughs> you know, 40 years later. And we joke, you know, I, I, I work in the auto industry, for sure. We talk about the Jetsons as well, right? So it's, it's interesting. Yeah, there's actually uh, a movie on Netflix called Space Sweepers, by the way. And Astroscale, mm. we call ourselves the Space Sweepers, like well before this movie came out. And oh, wow. we did a podcast on, we, we did a, like a live, you know, vetting of the, the movie and it was a lot of fun, but those sort of movies, they're starting to pop up like debris, yeah. gravity, everyone saw the movie gravity. A lot yeah. of people did anyway. Um, so yeah. it's all good. You know, we'll get there. There's just, you know, some changes we need that need to be made in order for us to all live in harmony in space, if you will. Yeah. Well, awesome. So thank you so much for joining me today, Charity. It was, uh, it was great talking to you. Thanks, Amanda. It's great to go down memory lane with you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for joining us today on the Women's Mentoring Network of Canada podcast. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, please reach out to us at wmncanada at gmail.com or on Instagram. Special thanks to our podcast editor, Ethan Kowenka. <laughs>